Lord God, we gather in Jesus' name today, knowing that we belong body and soul and life and in death, not to ourselves, but to you. We thank you for this resurrection celebration, and we do so in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to welcome you to Emmanuel Presbyterian Church this morning, and welcome those of you that are on Zoom as well. It is good that you are with us today, and we are glad that you are here. So enjoy this opportunity to, as I say often, reroute and reground yourself in the, the love of Christ this day, to know that we do indeed belong to God. Throughout this season of Lent, I have been preaching a series of sermons on the eighth, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, the eighth chapter, and today we're in the, the last passage of that chapter. And it's the title of the series is also the title of this particular sermon today, which is More Than Conquerors. And what we need to know is that for a writer set in the context of first century Rome, that's a very important distinction. Because what Paul is essentially saying to us throughout this great book of Romans is that we have something bigger to celebrate than the earthly victories of our conqueror Rome that those earthly definitions of power and conquest of winners and losers of victors and vanquished that those things mean nothing in the kingdom of god and therefore we're we're more than conquerors and today's portion of scripture that i am about to read is something that begins in romans 8 it begins with there is therefore now no condemnation and in this last passage it ends with there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I read this passage and it reminds me in some ways of Beethoven's symphony that, that doesn't quite want to end, that uh, comes to the end and just keeps sounding those notes like, I'm gonna say it again, I'm gonna say it again, I'm gonna say it again. That's what Paul does with this text as he celebrates this steadfast love of God in Christ. So let me read that text for us. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On Easter, I decided we should have a sung sermon before we had a spoken sermon. Uh, so thank you so much, Kelly, for giving us that take on this text. I can't read the eighth chapter of Romans without thinking of a particular person, actually, a 
who I met early in my career as a pastor, I can't help but think of a man named George Simmons. George, I think, was born in 1890. Uh, he was in his 90s when I was pastor of his church in Pasadena. He was a retired Presbyterian missionary who had worked for the International Bible Society in um, South America, I think doing translation work somewhere along the Amazon with indigenous people. He was the Indiana Jones of early 20th century missionaries. Representative of all of that, what if you're familiar with this, this heading, all of that kind of early 20th century muscular Christianity movement in the missionary world was all about. And George had tons of stories. George himself was a story. Uh, he was 16 years old and living in San Francisco in 1906 when the earthquake hit. He, as I said, did this work as a pioneer missionary along the Amazon. He retired in 1957, the year I was born, and I was suddenly his pastor. He died at 103, and I participated in his memorial service. I was the pastor of his church and so was expected to speak, but there were a lot of other people speaking at that memorial. And I was the last in the long line of speakers, many of them in Spanish. And I thought even beforehand, I thought I'm not going to be able to say much at this memorial service. There won't be time and everyone's eyes are going to be glazed over by the time the the 30-something youthful pastor gets up and talks and tries to add something to all of this. But George unknowingly gave me exactly the right thing to say at his memorial service, and it was something that he said to me almost every time he saw me. It was kind of a blessing. George was a trial in my life as well as a gift in my life. I need to tell you that. We would do things like go out to lunch and he couldn't drive anymore, uh, nor could he see very well, and nor could he somehow give me addresses for the places that we were going. And so about 10 feet before every right or left turn, he'd say, turn here. <laughs> and um, it's amazing that we both survived those lunches. Um, but George, every time he would see me, would, would offer this blessing. And he would say, you know, He's for you, Skipper. <laughs> Skipper meant I was the one in charge, but no. <laughs> That's really not true. It was a term of affection that didn't accompany the pat on the head, but it may as well have. Um, but that line, he's for you, Skipper, is what I said. I just said, George used to say this, and I read the text and I sat down. And that line, he's for you, is the line George gave me. And it's sort of George's Reader's Digest version of Romans 8. It's Paul in some ways saying, I've said a lot at the beginning of this text. I've said a lot. What more is there to say? No more needed to be said than that line, he's for you. Paul wonders as he starts this text, is there anything else to say? And I'm glad that he chooses to go on to say the things that he says. 
And in these final notes that he sounds in his song, he gives us the poetry that illustrates the theology of this marvelous chapter of scripture. And that poetry boils down to those words in George's blessing, God is for us. And Paul goes on after saying this, asking that first rhetorical question, to ask another whole series of rhetorical questions for which he assumes we all know the answer because we've been with him for those eight chapters. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And he answers that question, he says, only Christ. Only Christ has the power to condemn us. Only the sinless one can cast the first stone. So it's only Christ, but Christ doesn't condemn us. Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us, and Christ prays for us. That's J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of that text that's in Romans 8. So Paul asks the next rhetorical question, so who or what can separate us from this powerful, unassailable, persistent, and resilient love of Christ? And he gives two of his more memorable lists here. Paul loves, as you know, lists, and he gives these two lists. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. And while I'm at it, neither can death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation separate us from the love of Christ. It's as if Paul is saying, do you hear me? I've said it now about six times. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, no, nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So indeed, what then shall we say to these things? Since it's hard to say more, I want to draw your attention to a picture. I had copies of it out on the narthex table, and you can pick one up afterwards. But I'm asking Thad to put it up here. This is Piero della Francesca's resurrection in San Sepulcro, Italy. 1465 is the date that's been assigned to it. I've used it as a logo for this particular series, and I couldn't let it go without saying some more about it. I learned about this painting not from reading an art history book, but from reading a poem by Wendell Berry, which is on the, the page that I've reproduced for you out in the narthex if you want to take it. It's a painting that acknowledges, unlike many treatments of the resurrection, it's a painting that acknowledges both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's all told in the face of Christ as he stares in the direction of the viewer, all of us, as he looks at us through those eyes that seem to still be recovering from death, as he stares in the direction of the viewer, he stares at us and having gone through what he has gone through, yet having gone through it and not been stopped by it. And you can see the way in which he is far more than a conqueror, for a conqueror would be depicted all in white riding a horse. 
with his shield held high. He fixes us in his gauge and I think asks the question, do you get it? Nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. And I think Wendell Berry says it well, when in one line of his poem, he says, we who were sleeping, seeking the dead among the dead, dare to be awake. We who see, see we are forever seen. By sight have been forever changed. What's he mean? That those eyes that see us are filled with an empathy that changes us. That experiencing the loving gaze of Christ on us is the thing that changes us forever. And seeing what he has gone through in and through that expression, as we are changed, we say, I know what you have been through. And he says to us, I know what you have been through and will go through, and I'll be with you through what is yet to come forever. He is for us, and that changes everything. And so we can hear Paul's words at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he says to us, so be steadfast, brothers and sisters, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Take us beyond that vanity, Lord, that we sometimes experience as we take steps in our daily lives and help us to see how, because we belong to you, we are a part of your work. So help us to see where you are at work and to join you in that endeavor. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.